everyone, and welcome to GRA Talk, a podcast for modern caregivers, juggling work, home, family, kids, and finances, all while caring for an aging parent or loved one. I'm your host, Kelly Adams, a certified senior advisor and founder and CEO of Beyond Home Care. We understand how overwhelming and stressful life can be, especially when caregiving is involved. So Jerry Talk is here to provide you with resources, tools, and support to help you not only survive this season of caregiving, but to thrive in it. Today, we continue our conversation with attorney Greg Varner in elder care and estate planning. If you missed last week's episode, stop here and go back to listen to that one first, episode 11. As I said last week, there was so much great information in my conversation with Greg that I just couldn't edit it down to one episode. So today is part two, and we take a deeper dive into elder law and estate planning. So let's jump right in. So let's talk about some specific documents. Sure. So you mentioned the the final will and testament, and that's an important document. Tell us the difference between a final will and a living will. Okay. I have no idea why we name these things like we do. It, yeah. It's, it, it's ridiculous. You actually, these are the three, there's three things you have. You have, the, you have a last will, you have a living will, and then you have what's often people talk about as a living trust. Yes. And those have no explanation for why we call them all similar names like that. But the last will is the document where an individual does a couple of things. Number one, it directs where their assets will go after they die, who receives what. It also names the what we used to call the executor or executrix, but now we, we refer to it as a personal representative. And so it nominates that individual that empowers them to follow the terms of the will, of that last will. And so the last will is a a critically important document, but it's limited in one way, uh, in a major way. That limitation is the terms and who you've named as your personal representative does not have any authority to act, number one, until after you die. Right. And then even after you pass away, the terms of the will do not just automatically become the law. You then have to evidence that will truly is that individual's last will to a probate judge. And then once that probate judge approves that last will as being the last will, they then will empower the personal representative to gather the assets and then to distribute the assets. So the will is limited in time to after you pass away. And so that's the reason the will is very important because it does tell how things are going to be distributed after someone passes away. And that's a little different than if they died without a will. Um, Mm -hmm. If someone dies without a will, the state legislature has already predetermined who gets the property and how it's divided. And there's various distributions orders within the statute that is a little different than what most people think. And so there's different scenarios that if you have children, if you have children from a previous marriage, or if you have children, all the children are from the surviving spouse. There's different scenarios that come out in the statute and there's no discretion that that goes into place. The last will, on the other hand, gives that individual the authority to divide it however they want it to go. So that is the last will. 
the living will is an advanced directive. Those are two things that are usually together. It is a much more narrow document. Uh, the living will addresses the situation that most of us have been, and that is when someone has been diagnosed with a, a terminal illness or injury, or they're in some state of permanent unconsciousness or vegetative state, and of course they can't make decisions for themselves any longer. The living will and advanced directive is their ability to direct their treatment in that scenario. So I don't put the living will on par of importance with either the last will and testament or the power of attorney, which we can talk about next. Uh, but the living will is important, and I, I sort of base it more from my own family situation. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was growing up, I, I was raised by my, my mom and grandmother. And I, that's, I grew up in the, the home with them. And even as a little boy, I remember my grandmother always saying she didn't want to be put on a ventilator. I have no idea why I remember that or why it was such a common conversation uh, when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine years old. Hmm. But uh, so fast forward that I go off to Virginia to law school. And while I'm there, one night I get a call from my mom and she's like, we're at the hospital. Uh, grandmother's has these intestinal problems. And they want me to sign all these paper, all these papers that are going to pull the plug. And I'm not signing anything like that. And I said, um, Mom, grandmother doesn't want to be put on any machines. I mean, that was she's very clear about that. But my mom, in the moment, was like, nope, I'm not signing anything. Mm. And so if things had gone badly, my grandmother would have been on every machine in that hospital against her wishes. Mm -hmm. So it kind of etched in my mind the importance of the living will, because the hospital's just not the time to make that call. And so it kind of it demonstrated to me, it was, the, it was the ability of the elder in that situation, my grandmother, to remove the burden from my mother from having to make that decision, to have it somewhat on her conscience that she had pulled the plug. And I hate using that term, but most of my clients use it. Yes, that's the term that's used. But they're pretty blunt about what they want. Uh, the, but the living will, so tells your doctors, tells your kids, if I'm in this condition, this is how I want to be treated. And so fast forward again in my grandmother's life that after I got out of law school, we put together a, a better estate plan for her. And of course, what, part of that was her living will. Well, when she ultimately passed away, she was in the hospital for about three days and they'd called us in and basically said, you know, this, we've done everything we can do. Well, the living will at that point was invoked and her instructions controlled. Hmm. At that point, they kept her, you know, out of pain. But for instance, there was a situation where, where her heart repeatedly stopped beating and they didn't rush in and give her CPR because in that situation, she had directed that if she's in that condition, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, uh, she passed away, and I think that was with her wishes, that she didn't want to put her on a machine for the purpose of prolonging the dying process. Right. And so that is the living will, is very narrow. Um, it The last will and the power of attorney are much broader, have a larger influence in the living will. Okay. Uh, so does that answer your question there? Yes, that's great. So let's talk about then, you mentioned the power of attorney. Yes. Let's talk about power of attorneys. Okay. The power of attorney, in my mind, remember I said earlier that I was taught that the living will was most important. 
the right. door, the, the power of attorney today, I think, is the most critical document for anybody to have, whether they're 18 or whether they're 81 years old. The power of attorney is the document where someone can nominate, to name someone, to act as their personal representative before they die. And so remember, when does the last will come into play? It comes into play after you've passed away. The durable power of attorney is your ability to name someone to act on your behalf before you die. And so there's a couple of words I was going to describe in there. First is power of attorney. And what that means is that you are giving someone the ability to do what you can do. And that can be as broad as everything I can do, or it can be very specific and narrow. So we see a lot of powers of attorney where someone may live out of state and they empower someone to come in and sign a deed for them. But in this context of estate planning, normally we're talking about a general durable power of attorney. And in that instance, you're giving someone full authority to act in a whole host of areas. And that includes financial. So they could sign deeds for you. They could access your bank accounts. They could sell your property. So it has broad impact on the finances of someone, but also it's healthcare decisions. And so, for instance, let's say that you're not near death, but you have an elder that doesn't have the ability to handle their affairs any longer, and they fall and break their hip. Well, someone needs to be there to, and empowered to tell the doctors what kind of treatment should the elder have. Mm-hmm. Should they have the new experimental surgery or the old-fashioned kind, or should we just allow, you know, not have any surgical intervention? So that is another area that that individual can be empowered to do. Now, it also extends to the part that they could commit them to the nursing home. That's the type of power that they have. Now, it's important on the power of attorney to recognize that for most of mine, I do what's called a springing power, and that means that when someone give, signs that power of attorney, they don't have authority to act for them on that day. So I typically build in a trigger into my powers of attorney that state, down the road, if two of my attending physicians execute affidavits to the effect that I'm no longer capable of handling my own affairs, then the powers that are in this document are sprung. They're triggered. And that individual is empowered to act on their behalf. You don't have to go to court. You don't have to get any court approval for that. As soon as you have those affidavits, they're authorized to act on their behalf. Now, a lot of powers of attorney do not have that springing restriction, and they are what are called present powers of attorney. And those act as, I mean, you're, you've empowered in someone to, to act immediately for you, and sometimes that's appropriate. I just like putting some protection in there that at least I've built in a third party Uh, before someone can rush off and access someone's bank account or or do other things. I think what you just said is so important for people to hear because typically the reason that I hear my clients don't want to sign a power of attorney is because they don't want to give someone else the authority to make decisions for them right now or to access their bank account. So that springing part is huge to hear for, for those that are listening That's the key, I think, when you're having a conversation and mom or dad is so against, you know, you having the ability to do these things for them right now. 
Yeah, and and just to be honest, I, I part of the reason I do that is after I've been practicing for this long, I just don't trust people anymore. Yeah. <laughs> to do the right thing. <laughs> and so it's sad, but when you're on this side of that, yeah. I mean, you have probably seen some really messy things. I have seen some really messy things. Uh, you see that. And so I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah. So the power of attorney, the reason it's so important is, uh, or that I put it up a, a sort of in priority over the last will, is if someone, uh, say, for instance, becomes diagnosed with Alzheimer's, dementia, and that, uh, let's say it's rapidly progressing. If they don't have that power of attorney, the only real option for the family to be able to handle their mom or dad's estate in that situation is to seek what's called a guardianship and conservatorship with the probate court. And a guardianship is that aspect to handle the health care, where someone lives. The conservatorship is may, could be the same individual, but it is the person appointed to handle their assets if they are incompetent and deemed that by court. There are ways that I can avoid going through probate with a last will um, and accomplish the purpose of the will. But if someone comes to me or a family comes to me and says, you know, mom and dad are in this condition, I don't have any recourse except to go get that guardianship and conservatorship. So that's the reason I put it up there is that I've just seen many families have to rush the probate. It is very expensive. There's lawyer fees. There's court cost. There are what are called guardian ad litem fees where there's a lawyer that's appointed for the elder. They get paid out of the estate. There's a bond fees if there's a conservatorship established, which is twice the value of all the assets of the estate. And so those are just expenses that I've just seen. It, it, it will eat up a family's inheritance right? and all these expenses when we could have avoided it by having a simple document in place in advance of, of the situation. So that's the other reason I, I, I do put it up there in priority. Yeah, I think it is important to talk about the conservatorship and guardianship aspect because unfortunately there are times when things have not been put into place early enough and and so we have to go through that process. And I, I've seen that happen in my own practice and I mean it is time consuming and expensive. But what we're talking about today is if we can plan ahead, if we can have those conversations ahead of time, we can avoid that. Uh, and and I think most of our parents would want that avoided. Right. Uh, yeah. The conservatorship, the process is not the best in the world. Yes. Um, our statute is very, very old uh, and operates in many ways kind of like a Dickens novel as far as the process of having to go through your inventories, your accountings that they have to tender. And again, all of that is just resources that could have been avoided and, and saved if we had done some planning in advance. The The more difficult thing I would say when talking about advanced planning there is who will be the individual that is named as the attorney, in fact, the power of attorney? Who's going to be given that power? Mm-hmm. Or who's going to be named as the personal representative of the, the last will? That sometimes is the, the more difficult question. And you were talking about the emotion of it, of having to choose one child over another in that appointment process. But I'll tell you the way that I draft mine. And and number one, I never, never recommend 
uh, co-personal representatives mm. because it only causes dispute. And the simple example I always give is let's say that you've got kids that love each other, but it comes to a decision that you may need to sell the family home, perhaps to pay for the nursing home. Let's say they're put in that position. And the one child says, well, I think we should sell the house for 150000 And the other's are like, no, it's not worth that. It's worth 250000 Well, who's right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. And so we've just built a situation that we may have to go to court to resolve that dispute because neither party is correct. They have to act jointly. So I always, my recommendation always is to have a, an order of personal representatives and you name one individual and if they can't do it for some reason, then you name a successor. And then if they can't do it, you name a third successor. And I always ask for three individuals in that serial order of appointment. And I do that, number one, because it saves people having to come back to a lawyer if if their personal representative Mm -hmm. dies or becomes incapacitated or unwilling. They built some successors in there. So there's a practical purpose to it. But also, I think it, it allows them to sort of feel that, you know, I've named all the kids and I just, based off of all your advice, uh, had to make a selection of one of them over the other. And usually that sort of resolves any sort of internal conscience issues that they may have with nominating them. Now, I will say that when it comes to nominating your the attorney, in fact, in the power of attorney, I do think it needs to be people that know you well, know what you would want and how to be treated. Because again, they can make very powerful decisions over you, you know, things like going to the nursing home, medical decisions. And so I'm often asked by clients, would you cons- would I consider doing that? And I'm like, nope, mm-hmm. I'm glad you're my client, but we're not in that type of a relationship. And so it needs to be people that really, that you know. Now, I always, the second major aspect I always say is that they need to have a backbone and can stand up to siblings that may contest their decisions. And that part is as important as in the personal representative of the last will as well. Just having to do what the will says, even though it may not be what the kids want or how they wanted it done, their job is to follow that will. So those are hard questions and decisions. So that's another thing that before I, I always ask clients, you know, before they come in to be thinking about those things. And sometimes I send them home with that homework that they can't decide in the office on the very first visit. Let me ask you, is it is it a good idea to have a separate person be your health care, make your health care decisions versus your financial? I, I don't have a, a generalized preference on that. Okay. I think it depends on the, the case situation. So I have a lot of clients that may have, uh, give an example, let's say that they have an accountant for a child and a nurse for a child. Mm -hmm. That situation sort of lends itself to allowing the nurse child to be the healthcare power of attorney and the accountant to be the financial power of attorney. So the situations could be different depending upon the varying gifts that their kids are or whoever they're going to name. I would say Outgoes has 90% of the time is the same individual, um, and they don't divide. In Alabama, we, we, we can unify our powers of attorney. When, when I was in Georgia, they, would, they had two separate documents, but here in Alabama, we've unified ours. So you make a good point. This information may be different across state lines. Is that, that is correct? correct? The laws of estate planning are completely different in each state. Mm. So for instance, 
in Georgia, they require three witnesses to their will. In Alabama, we only require two. And so when you're probating a will that was maybe drafted in another state, as long as it meets the criteria of that state that the person died in, it can be probated. So these documents can travel from state to state. And so I have a lot of clients that may have moved here from, we're right over on the Georgia border. And so they will call and say, do I need a new new will since this was drafted over in Georgia? Most times there isn't a need for it. That will is perfectly, it would be perfectly valid. And assuming that it still meets their desires is a good will. And the power of attorney, similarly, if you go down on vacation into Florida and something happened, that state will honor our power of attorney. It's just, it's weird that a lot of people don't understand this, but so it would be in a Florida court, but they would be operating under Alabama law because the Alabama law is what was, it was drafted pursuant. Mm -hmm. And so that's just a little confusing. It's called a conflict of laws issue in the courts. But so, but yeah, that this stuff travels, but if you do, it's important. If you do move to a different state, that's one of those life changes that you need to have everything reviewed to make sure it's still a valid will in that state. Right. Now, Greg, with these basic documents, living wills, final wills, power of attorneys, are these very expensive documents or are these fairly reasonable for most anyone to I don't want to say that they are cheap, that you would probably, if you were to look as a couple, if you were looking at a package of those documents, you're probably going to be looking between six to $800 for the total package. Mm -hmm. And so that's not cheap. But again, when you're considering the potential cost of probating or conservatorship, it's, it's much more cost effective. Right. So are there any resources or tools that you would uh, recommend for either a family caregiver who is looking to start these conversations with mom and dad, or even, you know, for themselves to make sure that we've got our estates and affairs planned out correctly? This is the thing is that the internet... (laughs) You can get on the internet and there's a host of resources there. If you go to Barnes and Noble or Books a Million, there's shelves of books on estate planning. And I don't want to say that it's not important to educate yourself, but I highly recommend that people seek counsel. So, you know, anyone that's listening, I wouldn't just take my, you know, what I've said today. You need to seek direct counsel as to your situation because there's a whole host of reasons that I may do something different in a particular situation than I would others. And I'll I'll say that a lot of times if you go to Barnes & Noble, there'll be, as an example, there's a bunch of books on how to avoid probate. And I think that's even the title of some of the books. And those books are pretty much selling what are called living trusts. And I mentioned that at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And a living trust is a form of a last will sort of. It's a trust someone creates during their lifetime that distributes their assets or whatever assets they put into the trust at their death. So a lot of places, people want to avoid probate at all costs. For instance, in Florida, uh, Illinois, Connecticut, they have terrible probate processes. And so these books are written really for those states. For me, I only have a couple of situations that I would recommend a living trust. It's just not something I recommend very often. Mm. Uh, so for instance, if somebody owns property in multiple states, I can be sold on the living trust. But that's a, a prime example of a situation where the literature that you may find online or at the bookstore 
without explanation, I think it does more harm than if you had just gone and sought some counsel from an attorney. And I would say it needs to be somebody that's experienced in estate planning and elder law. Not every lawyer can do it or has experience in it. Uh, Another on that side and on that note, one of the documents I always ask my clients to bring is their deeds. And that's so, and this is something I always send everybody home with, that a lot of people think just because maybe their name and their wife's name is on the deed, that their property automatically goes to their spouse at their death. And that's not the case. There's some language in those deeds that determine whether that happens or not. And so that's part of working everything together. If you go online, um, you can print off a last will. Most people don't know how to coordinate their deeds with their wills. And those are the things that I think come with true estate planning is the coordination of everything together, not just some drafting of documents. Yeah, I think that's a great point to pool your resources and seek out counsel that can educate you and give you the tools and, and information that you need that are specific for your situation. Right. And just going back to, your, you know, you asked me earlier about what else is estate planning. You know, we talked about the documents, and this is probably for a whole nother show, I guess, or episode, a whole nother area that I consult with every family that comes in with estate planning is Medicaid planning. And the majority of my clients, that is where they are most desperate in need for advanced planning. When I was in law school, it was it was tax planning. Mm-hmm. But as a general rule, most tax planning is estate tax planning is not necessary anymore per se. There's been some changes in the rules in the last 10 to 15 years that have removed most people from estate tax liability. But on the other side, the vast majority of my clients have some liability and exposure if something was to happen that they went into the nursing home. And that's where that Medicaid planning is part of the estate planning. And it just depends on every family's different there. Yeah, I think that's a great point to bring up. And you're right, that's a a conversation for another day. But it's good to know that you can talk to families about that Medicaid planning, because more than anything, that has to be planned in advance. Yeah, that's definitely the one that the earlier you start planning, the better. Um, And you can't, that's the hard one to plan for, really, is is trying to time that, that type of planning, not too early, but not too late. Right, absolutely. Well, Greg, this information has been fantastic. Is there anything else that we need to talk about that you think that our listeners would be really interested in or have questions about? The only other thing I would say as far as this goes back to making sure your deeds, but also knowing the importance of the payment on death designations and beneficiary designations on their bank accounts, retirement accounts, because those things can trump everything that your last will does. They they actually control those so you could say, for instance, I leave everything to and your will to Georgia Tech, but if all your life insurance policies, bank accounts leave to other persons, your will's defeated. So mm-hmm. that would be the other thing is just to, as you're considering, making sure we're working everything together. That's good to know. Well, Greg, we really appreciate you and your time today being on Jerry Talk. Well, thank you for having me and I've, I've enjoyed talking to you. Hey guys, thanks for joining us today on Jerry Talk. I hope you've enjoyed these two episodes on estate planning and elder care with attorney Greg Varner. Greg is such a valuable resource for us, and I really feel like you can just tell how passionate he is and how knowledgeable he is in this side of the law. I find that the legal side of care planning can be really confusing and even daunting for people. 
So my goal with these two episodes was just to pull back that curtain and hopefully give you a launching off place or a starting place to have those conversations. Hopefully you feel empowered to move to the next step with your aging loved one in the legal side of their care planning. That's our goal. Subscribe to Jerry Talks so you never miss an episode and share it with friends and family who could also use this support and encouragement. If you would be so kind to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, it really helps for other people to find Jerry Talk. Join us again next week for another awesome episode. Until then, I hope you have a great week.